Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Taryn Sabia. Taryn is a research associate professor at the University of South Florida, where she is the director of the Florida Center for Community Design and Research. She is the co-founder of Urban Charette, Inc., a Tampa-based nonprofit urban design collective, and chair of the American Institute of Architects Regional and Urban Design Committee. Taryn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Courtney. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about the work of the Florida Center for Community Design and Research. The Florida Center for Community Design and Research is a research arm for the School of Architecture at the University of South Florida. We were founded just over 30 years ago to help the citizens of Florida create more livable and sustainable communities. And we do that through applied research, technical assistance, and we partner often with the graduate programs at the School of Architecture, both the Masters of Architecture and the Masters of Urban and Community Design projects, introducing students both to engagement practices within the field and give them a taste of what it's like to be out in front of communities, city councils, elected officials, working on real-world projects. So we kind of bridge that gap between academia and professional practice. Why do you think livable and walkable communities continue to be aspirational rather than the default? What are some of the barriers you've come across in your work? Livable and walkable communities tend to be aspirational because so many of our cities have been designed around the automobile. And so we tend to try to get back to the roots of what people are most interested in. And what we're seeing taking shape in a lot of planning practices now is looking at the goals of communities and how the social networks interact within those goals and what people are looking for. So when we ask people what they want to be doing and how they want to be doing it, the memories they want to be making and the places they want to be, they tend to mention those great public parks, our great public spaces, places that they can walk along waterfronts. Um, you know, they're not talking about the interstates and sitting in their car and going, you know, from one shopping plaza to the next. And so we're really trying to retrofit and redesign a lot of what has happened over the past 50 years or so. I know some of your work um, revolves around transit. How does that play out in cities like Tampa? So Tampa has had a long battle with transit. Uh, for more than 30 years, Tampa has looked at mass transit as a potential for being able to serve as a, a growth management tool, for being able to reconnect its urban neighborhoods, and for being able to really add that vitality and keep the brain drain from happening in Tampa. Uh, so we've had a failed referendum attempt in 2010 to add a penny sales tax for improved transit um, mobility. And this time around, though, it'll be a little different here in 2018. There was recently a citizen-led effort for a referendum. And so the citizen-led effort has been successful. They had nearly 80,000 signatures. 49,000 was what was needed um, in order to get on the ballot. And they've done that. 
What do you think is different between 2010 and 2018 besides the fact that this one was citizen-led? So the citizen-led piece is one of the, the big components that made it so different. And I think what we have seen over the past 10 years, and especially the, the previous eight, is that the citizens of Tampa have really come together. They're a lot more savvy. They're more educated. And we've really seen a civic infrastructure emerge in Tampa that wasn't there before. So citizens are starting to ask and advocate for those things that they believe are going to add to their quality of life. Have you observed how you create or maintain a civic infrastructure? I think that's something that a lot of planners struggle with. It's a tough topic, um, and this is one of the reasons that we formed the Urban Shrek Incorporated is through the nonprofit, we were able to gauge citizens and community members in ways that we couldn't necessarily professionally. So we were able to go where they were. We could go hang out at the coffee shops. We could go hang out at local bars and we could get young professionals engaged. And we felt that that was something that was a really key aspect in building that civic infrastructure and maintaining it. Getting people while they're younger, early on in their careers, whatever those may be, and getting them to be vested in a place so that they're not so quick to up and leave and go to that next great city, but rather stick around to try to build the one that they're in. And we found that being able to, you know, have programmed events, we have one called Urbanism on Tap. It's an open mic style where we have community members come out and talk about urban issues. So we'll spark the topic. We'll have a few experts there to kind of help keep it going. But it's a casual environment, and we like to say it's serious topics over serious drinks. <laughs> I'm a big fan of mixing business and pleasure, so I'll have to check that out. You hear a lot that, um, whether you want to call them millennials or whatever descriptor for the next generation, want to participate and be involved in different ways. Is that what you've experienced? We're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of millennial-aged young professionals get more involved and more civically engaged in what's happening. And I don't think it's just a Tampa phenomenon. I've seen it happen around the country, uh, most recently with um, hosting the Mayor's Institute on City Design. So I was a host um, back in 2014 and again this past 2017. And through the Mayor's Institute, we engage with mayors and treat them as the lead urban designer of their cities. And one the things that happened this past time is that 50% of those that were participating, so four of eight, were all millennial mayors. And so that was a pretty tremendous trend. So not only are millennials getting engaged, but they're running for office, and we're starting to see them hold elected positions. I've followed with interest the Mayor's Institute on City Design. Could you talk a little bit more for those who may not be familiar about the structure and the process. Yes, yeah, so the Mayor's Institute for City Design was founded by Mayor Joe Riley, who's a longtime mayor of Charleston, South Carolina, and recently retired. Um, it's an exceptional program, and it has really shaped how mayors often think about design. They'll partner with the U.S. Conference of Mayors and other universities to host uh, regional sessions. It brings together a group of eight mayors and eight resource team members. And those resource team members are experts from a, multiple fields from around the country. So they cover the fields of architecture, planning, urban design, transportation, engineering, economics. And we bring them together to really look at some of the toughest development problems or challenges that the mayors face in their cities. So they 
can bring those to the table in a comfortable setting and really work through those issues and also begin to understand how professionals who are within the planning and design fields can really help them and assist mayors at that level um, within the cities. Do you have a specific uh, story of the impact of the program? I'm wondering, there must be a mayor who went back with a new idea, or maybe you've heard from their staff, like, thank you for finally getting this or that across. Is that? Do you have something like that? So there are a number of successful projects that have actually moved forward that sparked, you know, and started through those initial conversations in the Mayor's Institute. And I can give you the Tampa example. So Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn participated in the Mayor's Institute as a as a mayor early in his term in 2011. Um, he brought a development project with him as the challenge. And now, um, standing in the place of that of that once uh, challenged issue is a beautiful boutique hotel. The city was able to figure out how to partner um, and to create an amazing element in downtown that reused a historic federal courthouse building. And so they took something that was a drain basically in downtown and now they've made it a productive member of the tax base. So mayors come with a particular vexing development issue, is that right? Yeah. So they bring they bring the issue. Um, we ask them to pick three. And then what we do is we conduct site visits. So I went out to visit each of the mayors that have participated and help them narrow down to the one that they would bring to the session. For those of our listeners that may not be able to send their mayor, I'm sure it's quite mm-hmm. competitive. Are there some lessons learned or practices uh, that have come out of the Institute that people might adopt? I think the lessons learned from the Mayor's Institute is the the amount of work that goes into these projects is something that they come away with. If one in 10 development projects is successful, it sets us up to understand a little more about how long they take to get in place. I think one of the other things that we learn is how important having vision and goals are for your city and being able to use these development projects as a way to push those goals forward. And so that is a key piece. And I would say that if a city is lacking those vision or goals, that's one of the first things that I think citizens can really advocate for and ask for um, if they can't get their mayor or their elected officials to events like those. So your participation in the Mayor's Institute on City Design is just one example of interdisciplinary work. It seems like most of your work is interdisciplinary. What else are you working on? So we're working on quite a few things that are interdisciplinary. Uh, Resiliency is a big issue right now, especially for those of us in Florida. And what we're finding is that it's not going to be able to be solved by just one profession alone. And so the Florida Center, um, which is a multidisciplinary research center and collaborates across the university with different colleges and also um, within the state university system across the state of Florida, we have partnered uh, the School of Architecture up with the College of Public Health, and we are leading the effort for resiliency assessment as well as mitigation scenario planning for Hillsborough County. So Hillsborough is the county that hosts the city of Tampa. It's in the Tampa Bay area, so neighboring uh, St. Petersburg and Clearwater um, and the Gulf Coast areas. So what we're finding is that as a multidisciplinary team, we can begin to really look at the issue 
as a whole in terms of the impacts that we're going to have, whether it's impacts to the built environment, impacts to environmental health, impacts to vulnerable populations, local economy, housing. These are things that are going to happen as we experience um, more sea level rise and issues from flooding. The new Perils of Flood Act, which was signed in 2015, is a compelling piece, and it now requires that all of our comprehensive plans include language on the perils of flood for coastal areas or areas with inland flooding. So all of our communities are going to have to address mitigation in some way and understand how to assess themselves, but we haven't figured out how to get there yet. And so that's what the project and the process that we're going through with Hillsborough is really about. So part of that will also be an interdisciplinary innovation studio. So we're going to use the graduate students uh, to help create the scenario plans looking at 2040, 2050, all the way out to 2100. So we're going to look at what 2100 looks like and have the students do it. It'll be a group of architecture, urban design, urban and regional planning, public health, and engineering students all coming together in the studio with faculty to support them. Scenario planning as an approach and a tool has come a long way. What's your experience with it, um, either the, the benefits or the limitations? So scenario planning is a way to test out some hypothesis about how we think things might happen. And when we're looking at science and scientific data as one of those base measures of what might happen, then we try to make a range and plan for maybe worst case scenario, which is what we'll be doing um, in this aspect, using data that came from uh, NOAA. And one of the things that I would say is, again, this goes back to those community goals and vision, because if you have those goals and vision, then that should help drive what that plan looks like ultimately, because each community has values that they have. And if you can build implementable goals off of those values, then you can begin to formulate what the future for a community will look like. And each community is going to be different because those values are different. Their culture is different. Their history is different. What they aspire to be is different. Their assets and resources are different. So being able to really encompass all of those things into a vision and know what the future could look like from that, I think is a really important piece. And then when you add that science and the data to it, then it shows you kind of where that needs to happen. Sustainability and resilience are on the minds of many planners and designers, but perhaps not enough of them. I'm curious what the trends are that you're seeing and or specific initiatives that are making a difference. So we're seeing a lot start to take shape in Florida. Florida is one of our, guests ground zero for resiliency. And I would say that it's not something that's out in the future. It's actually happening now. When you talk to architects in Miami, they'll tell you about their fears of building erosion due to saltwater inundation. And that the aquifer is already experiencing saltwater inundation. Plant life is starting to die off in some parts of the city um, and Miami Beach because of that saltwater coming up through the ground. So Florida is a lot like a sponge. So it's not water just coming over the edge, but water coming up through the actual ground that um, the roads are on and things like that. Uh, some of it's really predictable, like during king tide and things in terms of when it's going to happen. And so one of the big initiatives is uh, AIA Florida and AIA Strategic Council for Florida has been working 
with the Center for Communities by Design at AIA National to see if there's a process that we can put in action where architects can begin to help gather the disciplines um, and professionals within their communities to help them plan for both either assessing or mitigating future impacts um, related to sea level rise and water. How do you get the general public to realize this isn't a future issue, that it's a now issue? And that's a really good question. And what we're finding is that as communities become more educated on these issues in general, they start to understand that development matters and where we develop matters. And so being able to pair that with what might happen and also, again, going back to those community values, because the values should typically stay the same, even though we might see changes in the future. So if we can keep those values as part of that future planning, we can usually bring the community along. Um, Some of the best processes I've seen um, are the design assistance programs that AIA National has been doing for over 50 years now, where they engage communities with multidisciplinary teams from around the country. Um, They bring them in to work with the community. They do an an enormous amount of community engagement in four-day workshops, and then they help them develop um, a sustainable plan. And we usually refer to it as an SDAT. So the Sustainable Design Assessment Team is what they bring in. That's one of the processes that they've been doing recently, um, or I would say for the past 10 years. And one of the ways that I got involved was actually through an SDAT. I had written a grant to the American Institute of Architects for the Technical Assistance Program, um, and we received it in Tampa in 2008. And so I got to see firsthand what that experience was really like and how much engagement it brought to the community. And I do think that that was one of the things that did spark that civic infrastructure that we've seen build up. So processes like that really can be a catalyst for that future kind of spark for that civic engagement and getting communities, you know, on top of and engaged with what's happening, both in the planning and design realm. On that topic, I know a lot of your work involves participatory design. I'm wondering what you've learned about that approach and what you might share with our listeners. So what we've learned through participatory design is that engaging community members in a way that they can experience something has really been effective. It's been effective in both getting them interested in providing education and also getting them to become advocates for things that they've discovered that they really like. Um, We think it's important too to teach through experience because it helps us build a shared vocabulary and that shared vocabulary becomes really key when we're looking to build advocates in that civic infrastructure so some of the example projects that we've done are demonstration projects where we'll take over a block and turn it into a complete street for a day and what we do is we bring in partnerships The partners are really key because engaging not only the community members, but also other organizations. So we brought in our transit authority and had them set a bus stop up, and they did it in a half an hour, which is pretty amazing. So these are things that can be done, and you can bring groups together. And we had our carpool folks there to help people understand like how they could get part of the carpool system. And we had our bike experts there to show you how to actually load your bike on the bus and be able to do it properly. Uh, We had other people there uh, who helped them set up sidewalk cafes and things like this so that it was really a holistic approach um, to doing it. And then we showed them, you know, when you look at these drawings, 
this is what these things look like when you draw it out. But we really wanted you to experience what it was like to be in this type of environment. And so we really think that those demonstration projects and teaching through experience really help get that community engaged um, in those kind of more tactical or guerrilla urbanism type events. That's until uh, virtual reality is omnipresent <laughs> and affordable, I guess. We, we might all be out of a job. Uh, but I think it's it's interesting and it's important, the idea of um, making it experiential. Because, no, not everyone uh, knows how to read a site plan or even what they're looking at with a rendering. So I think that's something the architecture planning and larger design community should continue to be committed to. That shared vocabulary piece is also important. We all like to make jokes about jargon and acronyms, but it's true. It, some of the things we're used to talking about are very intimidating to the general public. I've also noticed, I think people think things happen by accident or that they don't have a choice to be an advocate. They don't understand that they can shape the way their neighborhood or city looks. I'm wondering if you've helped um, citizens or residents become that advocate. So we've seen it happen recently with a number of projects from an interstate widening project that the community was very upset over and didn't want to see happen because of the negative impacts it would have to the historic neighborhoods connecting to downtown Tampa. So the residents... um, began to get themselves educated, one, about the process with the Florida Department of Transportation, as well as the studies that were available to them that they could request the Department of Transportation, or DOT, do, and also to request additional studies that they felt were important to their neighborhoods, including economic impact analysis, which we typically see done for transit systems, but not interstate projects. And so this is one of the ways that we've seen the community really get engaged and begin to take that vocabulary that they learned and turn it on its head a bit in terms of saying, well, we're not so sure this is the best thing. And they were able to really you know, come out and voice their concerns, and they got the project put on hold, and now it's in a redesign so that the impacts to the neighborhood will be much less, if any at all, to some of those particular neighborhoods. And that was really through the citizens beginning to understand both the process and the terms. So that terminology and those vocabularies, as well as the process, were something I think that were really important for the community to be able to step up and say what was important to them and for them to be able to advocate for themselves and for the quality of life that they expect. Are you originally from Florida? I'm not originally from Florida. My family's from Connecticut and Massachusetts, so I've spent some time in the Northeast, but I did spend most of my childhood growing up in Florida. I'm wondering how that shaped your interest in thinking about places. When I was younger, there wasn't always a lot to do. We made our own fun, we would find things, but there wasn't necessarily gathering spots or gathering places. When I went away for grad school up to Northeast and spent about five to six years in Boston and Providence, I saw a very different world in terms of what the urban environment can offer and does offer, um, specifically around public spaces, transit, dense housing, and how all those things come together to really create a vitality that you don't see in the typical suburban areas in Florida. So density is another one of those um, lightning rod words. 
Do you have any stories to share about how you've helped people understand that density isn't a one-size-fits-all and the appropriateness of it in different contexts? Yeah, and this is where I think images can be really useful. So people don't really understand density. They think that density is scary, um, and they associate it with places like New York City, right? Big, tall buildings, and everything's going to be a skyscraper. So we talk a lot about how you can actually have dense communities in four- to six-story buildings, and that it's really about that building footprint and how those buildings begin to fill the urban grid and the space, and that places need density in order to help support things like retail and a lot of retail. So if you want more options for amenities, whether it's shopping or restaurants, you really need that density to be there to help support that. And that density also helps us get things like transit in place, better bus service, more walkability, and that we need those larger numbers of people out in the street. And by getting that, we also create a sense of safer streets. The the Jane Jacobs eyes on the street piece, you know, it always comes to mind. And I think people relate to that really well, because when you say, well, more people are out, more people are watching, so places don't feel so empty and alone. So TOD, or transit-oriented development, is obviously a, an idea on many professionals' minds, and sometimes it's cast as also a one-size-fits-all, that we're only talking about rail transit. I'm wondering what you've seen or worked on uh, that's bus-oriented development. So we're starting to see a lot with bus rapid transit or the BRT. Uh, Cleveland has a really great example of what it's been able to achieve with its BRT corridor. And so for what initially cost less than $200 million of an investment, they've received over $6.3 billion in an economic return. And so I think it's important that when we look at transit-oriented development or development that happens even around BRT lines, that we really look at the opportunity of foreign investment. So this is really about that return on investment, what a community can get back by what it's putting out in terms of those dollars. And the numbers are starting to come back and show that bus rapid transit is really successful. And per dollar spent um, for bus rapid transit, there's actually a larger return than with most light rail systems. Um, And it depends on that right of way, right? Where it is, how much has to be purchased so that you can get that bigger return. But um, what we're starting to see, and I guess, again, Cleveland really has kind of that, that project here in the U.S. in terms of the bus rapid transit. And they've brought together those community values, right, of creating that medical district and revitalizing what was an older industrial area. And so they've really been able to get the biggest bang for their buck by putting that that corridor in the right place. And so choosing that right-of-way and that alignment is a key piece for most cities. And making sure that you get the alignment right is really the piece that's really important. If the alignment is right and you also have a dedicated right-of-way, you're going to have a successful project, whether it's BRT or light rail, because the way they function is the same in that situation. So you've traveled a lot. I'm wondering if you have a favorite city. So my favorite city is actually Boston. I would say that Portland, Oregon is a close second. Uh, Portland because of how it's organized and how walkable it is, the amount of transit they have, and the number of connected public spaces. But Boston has a unique 
ability to really bring together the old and the new in a way that shows its history. And you can really see how that city has grown and changed over time. And so it brings those things together in a really pretty fabulous way. I'm wondering what you think the field of planning is getting right these days. So planning is doing a few things really well these days, and I'm really excited to see the number of collaborative projects that are beginning to, to shape around planning and design and professionals coming together from different fields to work on the same topic. And we're starting to see, you know, planners and architects and transportation planners and public health professionals all come together to help communities um, move forward and to begin to create visions that really encompass all of those things. So um, it's not everywhere yet, but we're again starting to see it. And I think this is one reason why we really tried to focus it in the studio, because we're seeing that the fields and the profession are beginning to change and demand more interdisciplinary work. And we wanted the students to have that coming out of school so that they know how to talk with and work with other professions before they even, you know, step foot in the real world. Um, We're seeing things like uh, the American Institute of Architects partnering with the U.S. Conference of Mayors for Civic I.O. Um, This was a pretty extraordinary opportunity uh, for architects to be part of kind of the entrepreneurial process that is typically at Civic I.O. at South by Southwest's City Summit in Austin each year. And so uh, this is part of AIA's Blueprint for America Um, beginning to have conversations with more of our civic leaders and our decision makers and bringing that into the forefront of what professionals are doing. I'm particularly encouraged by the collaboration with the public health field. It kind of feels like everything old is new again. Like This is where uh, a lot of our fields started, or obviously the, the issues were shared, but I'm wondering if you have specific examples of where that collaboration is is happening. So for for us, the collaboration is happening in our project areas right now. Um, the AIA has the Design and Health Research Consortium. So there's 23 partnered schools, which is a school of architecture partnered with a College of Public Health. So those programs have really started to shine in terms of finding projects that can be done. A lot of them might be building-based or building-specific in terms of architecture, but for us and working through the Florida Center, since we have that broader urban design piece, our work is really in that urban realm. So we've also brought in urban and regional planning to work with us on a number of projects. Um, So everything from looking at an urban design master plan for better connected public space in downtown Tampa to the Hillsborough County Resiliency Project that I talked about. Um, And then moving forward, we'll also be looking at how to really put together that design and policy piece. So I'm wondering um, where you feel like there's still more work to do. I think that most communities still need to have that civic infrastructure. I think that community members learning how to advocate for themselves and understanding what to ask for is going to be a key piece. And being able to help them direct those values into something that is feasible and implementable. 
but still being visionary, right? Not accepting what has always been done or just because it's always been done that way, but rather being able to get communities kind of to that next level and being able to engage with them in meaningful ways that really do deliver projects. So it's not a presentation about what we're doing as the planning or design staff, but rather here's what we can do and what you can do as a community. And I think that that is a piece where we will continue to see more work happen. Um, I also think that the collaboration between fields, particularly around the issue of resiliency, is one that's really needed. And it is a vital topic that we need to jump on like yesterday in order to bring the, the different professions together. So if someone wants to learn more about your work or any of the topics we've addressed today, perhaps resiliency, uh, participatory design, are there any resources you'd like to share that um, are your own or you're inspired by? Sure. So the Florida Center for Community Design and Research um, at USF is going to be a great tool. You can see some of our work and our projects. We'll have an active um, website as we're digging into this Hillsborough County resiliency piece so people can kind of see what's happening live time. Um, and we think that that's really important for communities who are struggling with resiliency issues, uh, particularly around flooding. And then I would say that the Regional Urban Design Committee and AIA National is a great resource in terms of articles that have come out. Um, we typically share things that are relevant to you know the urban and planning world, and as well as maybe some competitions, conferences that are relevant. Um, and then we also will advertise for those DATs, those DAP programs, when those announcements get made so that communities can submit applications um, to be able to get one of the design assistance teams in their community. And is it true for those not familiar, the Regional and Urban Design Committee of AIA is the one closest perhaps to the work of planners in terms of scale and do most cities uh, or chapters have a version of that that people could um, contact on a more local level? Yes. So the Regional Urban Design Committee is going to be the one that is very much like planning. And in fact, I would say that some of our AIA committee members are also AICP. So you really do see the bridge between the fields through the Urban um, Design Committee. And a number of our local component chapters around the country do have a Regional and Urban Design Committee as part of um, their local component. And so... I believe there's about 25 of them or so around the country, um, and we've heard more coming up, and we think that that's going to be a really key piece, and it's a way to help, again, bridge between the professions, which personally would love to see more of. Taryn, thanks so much for your time today and sharing with us a little bit about your work. Thanks so much for having me, and I hope we get to work together again. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org. <laughs>